I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel. This is a podcast episode brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. This week's episode has been sponsored by Avital and Gideon Harkim with prayer for the safe return of Daniel Shimon ben Sharon, together with all of the hostages and the safeguarding and protection of our soldiers and all of Am Yisrael. Our Shemot series focuses on personalities, mainly the 19th and 20th century thinkers and biblical commentators who have significant ideas to offer on each week's Parsha. Each episode delves a bit into their lives and thinking in order to understand how their unique perspectives impact their readings. We'll be talking Chassidut, modern German commentators, and much more. Today's episode is a bit unusual. It includes two separate conversations, the first that focuses on the 19th century and the second on the 20th century, with two unbelievably talented and wise voices. Uh, This episode provides a frame for the entire series, and the second one directly touches on this week's Parsha. But before we get to those episodes, I want to first just provide a short introduction to the book of Shemot and to its opening Parsha. The book of Shemot moves away from the family and onto the national plane. Pharaoh is the first to call the Israelites an am, a nation. Often it is those on the outside who can identify the changes in others. As God promised Abraham in the covenant of the pieces, the Israelites have proliferated in the land of Egypt, in a land not their own, and become a force to reckon with. However, it will take time and some foundational events for the Israelite nation to shed their slave mentality and become the arbiters of their own destiny. From a content perspective, Shemot can be divided into three, wherein the people are founded in three stages. The Exodus experience, the Sinai experience with its law-giving and covenant formation, and the building of the Mishkan. Parshat Shemot opens with a summary list of Yaakov's descendants who come to Egypt. This retrospective glance provides context and appreciation for the intense population growth the Israelites experience in Egypt. We meet the amazing female cast of characters who literally and figuratively midwife the redemption process, the midwives of of the Israelites, Moshe's mother and sister, the daughter of Paro, who defies her father's decree and saves a Hebrew boy. And once Moshe evolves, displaying his justice-seeking spirit and marries Tzipporah, God hears the cries of the people and begins the process of removing them from Egypt. Moshe is prepared in a very tense dialogue between him and God for his role. Moshe has a hard time believing in his own capabilities and doesn't believe that the people will be convinced to uproot and leave Egypt. After all, a familiar, terrible reality is more alluring than the unknown. The final section of the Parsha brings the people to a point of desperation. After Moshe begins discussing liberation with Paro, he takes a hard line with his slaves and heavies their burdens. The people become angry with Moshe, and Moshe in turn becomes angry with God. The Parsha ends with God's promise that the mightiest threat is still to come and that Paro will eventually let the people go. Today's episode is a bit unusual. It includes two separate conversations, the first one focusing on the 19th century and the second on the 20th century, with two unbelievably talented and wise voices. This episode provides a frame for the entire series, and the second one directly touches on this week's Parsha. David Beshevkin is a director of education for NCSY, the youth movement of the Orthodox Union, and the clinical assistant professor of Jewish values at the Sai Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. He has published four books, Synagogue, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought, a Hebrew work, Berogez Rechem Tiskol, and Top 5 Lists of Jewish Character and Characters, and Just One, the NCSY Agadah. He hosts the rich, effervescent, and wildly moving media company and podcast by the name 1840, which helps users find meaning in their lives through the exploration of Jewish thought and ideas. 
David Beshevkin, it is an honor to have you here this evening. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure and privilege, especially to be uh, on a Torah-centric podcast. And I don't have to host. This is a lot of fun <laughs> it is. It's, it's, to be a guest. It is a lot of fun. I have to say your your voice and thoughts have accompanied many runs and walks of mine. So this is, uh, this is particularly oh, moving. Oh, so kind of you. And, uh, and Thank you for having yes, me. Yes, our pleasure. So as, as our listeners know, we're sort of embarking on a new series, as we do at the beginning of every book of the Torah. And and this season, we're going to be speaking about 19th and 20th century commentators, about their personalities, about their perspectives, and and why, and, and sort of what is fascinating about those centuries and how it's particularly relevant to their also really vibrant commentary on Torah. Um, actually, inspired by you, because I know you like to tell personal stories. I'll I'll share one personal story, which is that when I was in ninth grade, uh, I was first introduced to the concept of exegesis in the sense that the little print on the bottom of the page is a lot more than that. And that behind that little print, there's this entire world that's there. And until then, it was all sort of like Chinese, and you're just sort of trying to figure out what the words mean. And I had this amazing teacher, her name was Shoshana. And uh, and then we thought she was like an insanely old single person. Turned out she was like 25, but we, we didn't really know <laughs> because we were ninth graders. And it turns out that five years later, I went to university class in Shiva University, and I realized what she had learned all of her knowledge from. It was a class in Stern College with Rebecca Mordechai Kohn, Rabbi Dr. Mordechai Kohn. And the point was, is that she really introduced us to this concept that the Ramban and even Ezra and everybody comes from their own cultural milieu and that wildly impacts the, their thought patterns. Now, of course, as you get older, you experience this on, you know, in your own skin and you understand this concept. So sort of, I guess with that, with that frame, um, you clearly have some sort of passion for the 19th century, uh, as you've written about and you podcast about, and you even have a whole episode devoted to describing the reason why you chose to name your media company on the podcast 1840. But I guess uh, I just like us to sort of speak to that century for a little bit to understand uh, what changed. And since the Jewish world is always sort of a litmus test for what happens in the broader world, to sort of understand how those changes impact the Torah world as well. So why don't we like sort of jump in at that point? I think the 19th century, in many ways, if I had to pick a century that most mirrors and resonates with the contemporary struggles that we're still dealing with today, uh, it really is uh, the shift that took place in the 19th century, which I think uh, at the heart of that shift is the self-awareness of our own individuality and almost the self-conscious struggle of constructing a sense of self. Why do I put that at the center of uh, the eight, of the 1800s, the 19th century? Um, prior, you know, in the medieval period, in the early modern period, the world was so much smaller and almost so much easier in many ways to navigate because what you were exposed to was so much more limited. The need to construct a sense of self, the need to construct meaning in your life is easier and commensurate with what, how many options are you exposed to. If you grow up in a shtetl in the 1400s, uh, your professional life, your romantic life, and your religious life is essentially 
almost predetermined. The amount of optionality that you have uh, is incredibly limited. You had to become and apply to be a part of a guild uh, in your professional life. And Jews were only able to have certain professions and different towns had different spots of what you were going to do and who you're going to marry probably boiled down to, I don't know, 50 families, 100 families, uh, communication was much less. And your religious life, again, the separation of church and state was not as strong, certainly as it is now, and, and certainly not in the 1800s. So your religious life was predetermined. Everything begins to, begins to shift with Jewish enlightenment. And with the Jewish enlightenment, I think more than anything else comes the question of optionality. What do you want to choose? What do you want to become? And the 1800s, it almost becomes a given that you need to make choices to chart out and navigate your own life. It is the feature of modernity itself that we're still dealing with. And it seeps into, obviously, your professional life. There are Jews, they didn't have as many options as we have today, but you have more options than what you're able to choose in your professional life. Uh, globalization is happening, so there's much more communication, there's much more transportation, railroads are emerging, telegram is emerging, this is all mid-1800s. Um, and in your religious life, this is where uh, traditional Judaism fully erodes, and now you have multiple streams and variety of Judaism that emerge. So the question that people are being asked for the first time is almost, who are you? What, what, what do you want to be? What do you want to become? What do you want to be when you grow up is a nonsensical question pre-1800s, you almost knew what you want to be. What is my father? What's my mother? Where do we live? And you could almost predetermine what your life is going to be. Not to say that there weren't major shifts, but those shifts were external, not internal. You have crusades, you have Cossacks, you have all these things happening, but those were external upheavals. Internally, you know, life moved accordingly, more or less. Obviously, we're, we're talking big picture here. In the 1800s, the locus of control is being placed in individuals' hands, and they're being asked questions about their own identity and their own purpose, and that actually trickles down and almost plays a role in the way people relate not only to their religious lives, their professional lives, um, and, and their uh, romantic lives, but it even plays a role in the way people look at the Torah itself. The type of Torah being developed is, is addressing that individualistic concerns that I think people are uniquely and acutely aware of beginning in the 1800s. If someone finds it hard to envision, um, let's remember that for women this happened almost two centuries later for them. And so if you sort of have ever experienced watching sort of that kind of awakening of like, wait a second, I have an identity and I can actually make any choices I want. And and we know that on one hand, there's a liberation that comes with that. And there's also tremendous confusion, meaning Exactly. Right. Those are like the two sides of that coin. And for some people, that liberation is freeing and they're the kind of person who grabs their destiny by the horns and they can run with it. And for many people, it creates total inner anarchy and all they really want to do is crawl back a century. Exactly. The words I would use is agency is, is a foments anxiety. Anxiety is the concern 
of uh, it's a future concern. It's a future focused concern. It's not depression. Anxiety is what does my future hold? The mystery of the future. I want to gain control over my future, which we really can't do. Anxiety increase the more mysterious and unknown your future is, which is a product of the agency that you have. The more agency you have, the more options you have. And that is the feature of modernity. It's the lives that we're all grappling with today. When you have every option at your disposal, it, you have to really construct the self. There, there's a, a, um, a statement that I come back to over and over again from Irvin Yalom, who's an existential yeah, psychologist. Sure. Kanina Hari is almost 100 yeah. years old now. Uh, and he has this book called Love's Executioner. And in the introduction to Love's Executioner, uh, he has just, it's a throwaway line, but it's so profound. He says that the word decide comes from the same root as the word homicide and suicide. Because every time you make a choice, you are forced to, so to speak, slay a part of yourself. And that's a true in, in Hebrew as mm-hmm. well. The word bachar came from the same root as charav, as churban. Every choice you make, every act of bechira that you are doing has an accompanying churban. If you want to become a doctor, that means you're not going to become a lawyer. If you want to become, you know, dati le'umi, uh, and you want to become a part of this religious community, it means that you're not necessarily going to be have that same affiliation with another religious community. So modernity, with modernity, comes this angst and anxiety that meaning is not something that's going to be inherent in the trajectory and narrative of my life, but it's going to be something that I have to seek out and construct on my own. Okay, and so what are some of the questions within our religious commentators and their worlds that they're grappling with? Because let's even, if we go back earlier, you know, we had many we had many, t- many eras of persecution, whether it was crusades or later on in the Middle Ages. And we grappled with questions of emunah. We grappled with questions of, are there articles of faith that we have to carry around with us? And, and so we did have these big questions. But as you're pointing to, these are questions of a different sort. They're more internally uh, inward focused. So how does that manifest in some of the questions that are asked and, and also in, in the different kinds of of disciplines that we have within Jewish thought? I think the two thinkers, and there, there are many... I would divide it up into two categories. And there are two thinkers I want to highlight uh, in the latter category. I think there are two categories of thought. There's one category of thought that in this world where there's more exposure to other ideas, which kind of erodes that inherent meaning that we thought we always had, and now we realize, wow, there are multiple streams of, of interpretation. So one approach is more polemical in nature, which is basically, I'm going to play defense and respond to non-traditional approaches who are using new tools and methodologies, uh, particularly that emerged uh, in in the non-Orthodox world, challenging uh, not even, I'm not even talking about biblical criticism per se, I'm talking about the emergence of the oral law and oral interpretation. And they're playing, um, they're playing a polemical game to try to almost prove in some ways that the oral traditions that we have, that meaning can still inherently be found within the text. And in that camp, I think the highlight, who's, who's a, a thinker that certainly uh, emerged in the, in the 1800s, and that is Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. I believe he was born in, in 1808. Uh, he lived uh, 80 years, so he died in, in 1888. And Rav Hirsch is really in dialogue, a polemical dialogue, um, trying to show that, no, 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 there was no rupture, there was no break, and the oral law and the, and the written law 
uh, really flow sequentially from one another. And I don't even like using the word written in oral law because they're talking about much more than that. They're really talking about that static tradition that we have that is canonized in our Tanakh and the more fluid, what we see as more fluid traditions that have emerged as Torah Shabal Peh the collective Mesorah that we have preserved in each generation. And people like Rav Shantran, Rafal Hirsch, and I would also put in this category uh, the Ksavik Kabbalah, Rav Yaakov Tzvi uh, Mecklenburg, who was born a little bit before the 1800s, but died in 1865. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to show that there's no rupture. We could still... Uh, retain that world where where that static idea of meaning representative of Torah Shabal Peh and, and the world of, of, of Torah Shabal Chsav, I'm sorry, and the world of Torah Shabal Peh still flows sequentially from one another. There's no rupture um, and there is kind of this integration of these two bodies and repositories of Jewish wisdom. Now, not everyone takes that approach and there's a second category that I find much more compelling uh, from just a, a methodological point of view, and I find much more theologically resonant, much more moving in a personal way. And I would put in that second category, obviously, you knew I, I had to quote him at some point, Rev Tzadok HaKohen Melublin. Yep. Uh, who was a Hasidic thinker, who was born in 1823 and died in 1900. Uh, and I would also put, he's not... <coughs> Excuse me, he's not Hasidic, um, but uh, the Nitziv, Rev. Natali Tzvi, who the Berlin, uh, and he, again, almost a direct overlap with Rev. Tzadok, is born in 1817 and dies in 1893. Uh, almost a direct overlap with Rev. Tzadok. He was the Rosh Yeshiva in Valazhin Yeshiva. And, and they're both dealing with the same question. And the question is how did we get here? How did we get to the place that we are in, in terms of the interpretation and our relationship uh, to the prophetic world, so to speak, of Tanakh? And the world we live in today seems so detached from that world of prophecy that we live in today. It seems so much more devoid and cut off from that world of meaning. It doesn't seem to flow sequentially from that world that we interact with when we open up Bereshish, Shemos, Vayikra, Malachim. It, it, it doesn't seem connected. We don't seem to still live in that world. And both of them really describe how modernity is a fluid process that unfolds over time and there is a a seismic shift in the way that we look at ourselves that begins with the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, really begins in the Second Temple period, leading up to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, which begins the centering of self as a mediator for divinity, where divinity used to be something that was prophetically mediated, it was something top-down, and they now we are shifting to this world where divinity emerges from the bottom up through our own interpretation. And they're really speaking to the phenomenon of what it means, what it feels like, the phenomenology of what it feels like to be in the modern world, where prophecy and clarity and divinity within the Torah itself is much more muddled, it's much more confusing, it's much more diffuse. And they don't say, oh, it clicks in like Lego pieces, like Rav Shamshin, Rafal Hirsch, and the Ksavik Kabbalah present. They're not as polemical. They almost 
allow for a rupture. They allow for the fact that we are living in a different world than the prophetic universe, and the struggles and pains that we feel in our personal religious lives are a product of that ultimate original rupture, which was the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. If I, if I understand your description correctly, the category of of Rav Hirsch and let's say the Ketav Kabbalah, there's something about it that's on the defensive, right? You say polemic, meaning they are saying, here are all the challenges that have been brought. But they can't ignore the challenges, obviously. And they're two very different perushim. Both of them are phenomenal. Yeah. Um, I also want to say that anyone who's opens these up, you won't necessarily immediately get a sense of what of what uh, Rev David is explaining to us here. There are there's a lot of very classical language that happens there and what you're describing are the are in many commentaries that are sort of that are throughout, but it's something that's sensitive. You have to sort of read a tremendous amount of it to sort of be able to come to that conclusion. But that Correct. that position is a defensive one, right? And whether it's defensive against the reform or right all the different things that they're responding to each in their own in their own uh, in their own local culture. Um, the position that you're describing of, of Rav Tzadok and of the Nitziv is one that takes for like this reflexive position of here's what's happening and here's where I can sort of, I can swim again in these waters is one that sort of has to take a sort of a big, a big gulp and say, this is the world we're living in. It is different. It sort of changes all the terms of engagement. But if I take it head on, I can, I, we can find a way to sort of, to still soar in this environment. But it's, a, as you described, I think it's a very different starting point from, from an internal space, an internal space of, do I look at it and say, I have to figure out how to defend myself against it? Do I say, wow, right, take a really deep breath. This is a big challenge. But if I can internalize a lot of these things, right, that that internalization, which is also a big draw. I mean, we didn't, we, I don't know if we'll touch upon chassidut, but the internalization of Avodat Hashem is one of the ways of our, of our services, God, of God is one of the ways that they're able to sort of figure out how to refloat in this, in this world. Because the rupture of community, the focus then becomes much more inward and much more particular. So, they're sort of they're two very different, um, you know, stances within oneself. I think that are reflected in the description that you're that you're giving of these commentators. The word that I would use, and it's directly um, from one of my one of my teachers, uh, Professor Yaakov Elman of Blessed Memory, uh, did write an article about this. And I, if I could give it a shout yeah, out, please, uh, and you could learn it uh, in his memory. It's called "The Rebirth of Omni Significant Biblical Exegesis in the 19th and 20th Century." He always has really catchy a, titles a, in his in his articles. <laughs> Sometimes he does. This was I don't know. If this was going to be in the uh, Mount Rushmore of his catchy titles, but it is a jaw dropping article. And at the center of the article is a word that is actually not his own, but it's an important word which he uses called "omni significant," yeah, sure. which is the commitment. That there needs to be, we need to be able to find and construct meaning in all areas of the Torah. And I want to add on one aspect to that, which I think Rip Tzadok and the Nitziv are very involved in, which is finding finding meaning and darshaning, so to speak, uh, interpreting um, history itself, interpreting Jewish history itself and the evolution of Jewish history and Jewish thought uh, and Torah itself, that there, there is a component of Torah itself which is different in each generation and building upon itself and God speaks through this collective body called Knesset Yisroel and they're trying to understand how each generation's relationship to Torah has evolved. What they're really doing 
is they're not just limiting themselves to commenting on the psukim. They're almost taking a very macro view and zooming all the way out and saying, not just what is the meaning of this pasuk, but what is the meaning of this tekufa, of this period, of this generation? And why are why is the generation of the biblical generation, the prophetic generation, the generation of Midrashe Halacha, the generation of Mishnah, the generation of the Gemara, and the Savarayim, and, and the Rishonim, and everything that came after, why do they all seem a little bit different in the way that they relate and recover and construct meaning through Torah? And what they're really doing is the text they are commenting on is not a text. It's on the Jewish people themselves. Mm. The text is us, which I think really accelerates the resonance and importance of machshava, of Jewish thought, in the 19th century. That it's no longer commenting uh, exclusively on psukim or mishnayis or mamari chazal, the, the, the words of our sages, but what is centered in as the as the object of interpretation and commentary is the human experience itself, both as individuals, but even more importantly, the collective experience of Knesset Yisroel. It's interesting because a lot of what you're describing obviously has so many uh, parallels in the world we're living in today. If I could even just compare the kind of education I got when I was younger, and this isn't to bash any school in particular, but and some of it had to do with the limits of, of Hebrew language, but there was a very sort of like narrow focus on, on those words, on that pasuk. And, and as I got older, and this existed while I was also younger, I just wasn't exposed to it, was much more drawn to the kind of commentaries and, and, and thinking that was broader, right? Again, because to be broad, you have to be reflexive and reflective. To be able to look at that broader picture, there has to be sort of a broader trend of thought that you're trying to, to comment on, you're trying to think about, you're trying to process, which is, which go, and understanding a particular pasuk or word or syntax is very important. But what really drew me as I got older was this, and again, as our, our listeners know, Right, that we've been learning together for a few years now. That this sort of the broad thematic ideas are the ones that that really, 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 uh, that really pull me in. And and while you have a lot of comments that contribute to that kind of thinking that you can take from a few centuries ago, the the commentators who started to think like that, to think broadly and thematically, really only emerge in these in these eras. Meaning before that, you'll find midrashim and you'll find unbelievable kernels in many different places. But those who started putting it all together into sort of like a broader presentation. Uh, definitely emerged emerge in, in this time. But I guess I wanted to ask you a last question, if that's okay. For sure. So some of the commentaries you mentioned, we're going to devote whole episodes to them. So looking forward to that. That's exciting. Yes. I, hope, I hope. Yes. The Rapsodic episode. I'm, I'm, I'm ready and able, willing to serve. Oh, okay. Okay. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. Okay. But I, I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, you speak about in, in, on the heels of the Zohar and the year of 1840 and, and that prediction and how that manifests in different ways during that year and how that was sort of cataclysmic and, and mostly in a positive way, sort of like a perfect storm for the world of, of thought. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm curious. Um, because I can't help but be reflective about the moment that we're in here in Ov Am Yisrael and especially in Israel. If you think that 2023 has some sort of element of uh, of change or rupture, or I'm just curious how you think about this as a, a moment. I know it's hard to say because we're not out of it and it's hard to think reflectively about something that we're still in. 
But, uh, but I'm curious if you think that this moment is going to be something that's, that impacts us thought-wise in our thematic thinking. Uh, it obviously is going to be impactful on Israeli politics. We're not going to go there in this conversation. But I'm curious if you think that there is some element of that uh, going on in, in the current moment that we're in. I don't think it's some element. I think it is at the heart of this story. I think in many ways uh, the Jewish people have been uh, drifting in and out of sleep uh, for the past uh, few decades, uh, where my feeling, and we grew up in similar environments, uh, we have fallen asleep uh, on the comfort of our collective couch and our in our collective homes. Uh, and I felt in many ways among young people that we have felt that our story is almost uh, detached and floating out on its own, uh, detached from the larger story of Jewish history. Uh, we were a generation uh, that was maybe the last generation to know and interact in meaningful ways with Holocaust survivors. Uh, and now, uh, I think even more importantly, we have woken up to the fact that I hope we've woken up to the fact that we, we are of the last generation uh, to know people who were aware and alive for the founding of the state of Israel. And you have people growing up uh, who were born, you know, if you're, you're 23 years old, you were born in the year 2000, uh, you're born, you know, you, you don't really remember 9-11. What have you seen, what have you participated in, in terms of Jewish history? And there is this sense where comfort, the comfort of our lives can lull us to the urgency and the stakes of our identity and who we are and what narrative we are collectively a part of. And I think that in the rubble and the shards of this tragedy, people have woken up to what it means to participate and be a part of the unfolding story of the Jewish people. And I hope people do not relate to Jewish history uh, passively. Uh, I hope they don't relate to Jewish history uh, shallowly. Uh, and I, I saw uh, too much of that, too much of that, especially with, with young people. And waking up and knowing that within you, uh, the generations that have sacrificed uh, to allow us to be at this moment, to allow us to even have the ability to drift off to sleep on the comfort of our collective couch, we have woken up to the sacrifices that have gotten us to this point because we are seeing the sacrifices of this very moment. And the way forward, in my opinion, is to wake up and to realize that Jewish history and the battles of Jewish history and the sacrifices of Jewish history continue to endure within us, especially with what we've just participated in, and that we should never fall asleep again uh, because of the boredom of our own that our luxury allows us for. Uh, I, I, I simply think that the Jewish people became bored and we fell asleep, like you fall asleep in the middle of class. There's no final. There's nothing coming up. There's no. It's just a class on a Wednesday. And it felt generationally that we just passed out. It wasn't anything offensive. It wasn't anything mean. It's not like we hated the class or hated it. We fell asleep simply from boredom. And I realize, I hope we realize collectively that there's too much urgency in this moment. We can't fall asleep in that way again. The way to stay awake... Um, the way to stay awake is, is to hear your own name being called out through Jewish history. If you allow me, just conclude with a story. You know, we want to talk a little bit about Hasidus. So, uh, within the Hasidic community, this isn't this is more hagiography, hey not actual history. But the the founder of Hasidus is called the Baal Shem Tov, 
And there were many Baal Shem, but he's known as the Baal Shem Tov. And, and one of the reasons, what they asked, what, why was he called the Baal Shem Tov? So one of the reasons that's provided within the Hasidic community is that the Gemara tells us that when you're falling asleep, when you're drifting off to sleep, nim velo nim, tir velo tir, that's when your head starts to bob and you start to pass out. There's only one thing that wakes you up when you're falling asleep at the Shabbos table on a late Friday night. You have to call out the person's name. The conversation doesn't wake them up. The soup doesn't wake them up. The gefilte fish doesn't wake them up. You say, Mom, Dad, David. All of a sudden, you, 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 you jolt up, you hear your name being called. And the Baal Shem Tov called out the name of the Jewish people when we were falling asleep uh, in that generation. And I hope in this generation we wake up uh, not just from tragedy, but we wake up because we hear our name being echoed by Jewish history itself. And that is the moment of, of the 1800s. And I think in many ways it's the moment and the opportunity that we have now to hear our own personal individual names and lives being echoed uh, throughout Jewish history. Thank you so much for being here. My absolute privilege and pleasure. We're honored to welcome back Rabbi Yitzhak Blau, Rosh Hashiva at Yeshivat Oraita, and who also teaches at Mishesh at Lindenbaum. He's an associate editor of Tradition, Journal of Jewish Thought, and the author of Fresh Fruit and Vintage Wine, The Ethics and Wisdom of the Agadah, and has published many articles on Jewish thought. Rabbi Blau, it is an honor to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So I've asked you to come back for several reasons. Uh, the first is that you published an, a wonderful series on the VBM website, the Yeshiva Haaretzion sort of Torah archives, uh, a series that I've utilized also in my teaching, where you really went into really into the weeds in depth into the thought of of many modern uh, many modern commentators, both uh, sort of those weighing on the Hasidic side and also also non Hasidic side. Uh, and so when I was thinking about this series, your name immediately uh, immediately came up for me. And what I sort of wanted us to talk about today on the heels of the previous conversation that the listeners heard with David Beshevkin is to sort of move a little bit more into the 20th century and also speak a little bit actually about Parshat Shmot, uh, which we haven't yet touched on in this episode. So maybe maybe bring us into that century to understand what's shifting, right? The world is sort of acclimating to modernity. It's not the same cataclysm that we have in the previous century, but of course there are still all of these processes that are happening in the world historically and of course that are then um, entering into the Jewish world. So bring us into that space. Sure. So I, I'm going to mention one uh, phenomena that we're not really going to discuss just to be aware of. Obviously, in the beginning of the 20th century, you get uh, the ideology of communism rising to the fore. And then you have various Jewish responses to that ideology, which is quite important, actually. But I'm going to just go back to the, the progression in the encounter with modernity. Like Jews now have greater access to the wider world. And that plays out, I would say, perhaps in two different ways. Uh, and here, you'll excuse me, I'll be more intellectual than social. Sometimes I get caught up in my little intellectual world, but uh, that's what we're going to do for now. I think intellectually we could talk about challenges that emerge. So, so to speak, uh, if you're a Bible scholar, you know, what, how do you now deal with Graf Wellhausen and biblical criticism? Uh, if you're a scientist, right, the emerging question of evolution, right, so that's on the level of challenges. But, you know, it, an encounter is not all challenges. An encounter is also opportunities. So if we have access to an education we wouldn't have had before, 
right? If you have rabbis going to university, well, what can they get out of it? How could it be helpful to a religious personality? So I, I would break it into two, the question of challenges and the question of opportunities. And also, we're going to focus on two figures today, which I think is interesting in terms of the cultural differences. Okay, you have the encounter with larger culture uh, happening, let's say, back in Germany and Austria. And then you have the encounter with larger culture in the New World, in America. So we're going to see where David Zvi Hoffman doing his, uh, his thing in Germany. And also discuss with Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, who did study for a doctorate in Germany, but most of his uh, you know, teaching career was in America. So it'll be interesting to see how this question of challenges and opportunities played out in both these countries. So it's interesting just to hark back to the previous conversation uh, with David, which is that we sort of spoke about two possible stances that are true in general when you encounter a challenge. The first is a defensive one, and we sort of brought a little bit more like a Rav Hirsch kind of personality. And the other is a recognition of the challenge and then to figure out how to sort of set your sails along with it. So I feel like, if correct me if I'm wrong, that both of these personalities are those who very much, right, embrace it, meaning we're speaking about, you know, university education, even professor, and uh, and they're sort of taking modernity with them and figuring out how they can forge a path forward that is that is inclusive of those ideas, but also preserves preserved tradition in a way that they also feel can still be palatable in a world that has so greatly been altered. Okay. Uh, I wanted to add a third category to what you said. I mean, I didn't hear the interview with Rabbi Beshevkin, but uh, in terms of the defensive posture, I think you could divide that into two. I mean, one would be you're basically going to ignore the issues and just say it's apikarsud and uh, we shouldn't address it. Okay. That would be one posture. Uh, Shalom Karmi had made a very interesting suggestion once where he said that sometimes the best defense is the best offense. And Tanakh is actually a very good example. Like, I could go with the Bible critics and view Tanakh as a uh, merger of disparate documents. But what if I say, I'm not going to fight it argument by argument. I'm going to say, let's see what happens if we read Tanakh as a unity and see if it works. And what if it works well and produces good results? So Shalom would say that itself is an argument. I mean, you have kind of, I'll be in the trenches, explain why there are three wife-sister stories. Or you could say, no, I don't have to deal with it on a you know, case-by-case basis. I'll just present a different model. So I just want to point out that the defensive posture sometimes is a real response, isn't just a, a closing off. Okay. That being said, I think sometimes... We do want a more piece-by-piece response as well. But here also I would differentiate. It's actually, I didn't plan this, but it works out great, the contrast between our two figures. Radov Srihafen was the first person to really take on biblical criticism, right? And again, as using the term I said, in a trenches kind of way, right? Here's why I don't accept this aspect of the argument. Here's why I don't accept this aspect of the argument. So he certainly did so. Rav Salvechik is interesting because he was totally uninterested in tackling biblical criticism, but I would say he was more interested in tackling, I would call it the spirit of the age. And I think lonely man of faith would be a good example of that. What is a lot of the point of lonely man of faith? Uh, that modern man is really into conquest. Again, I think we have to think like the 1960s. We are now able to go to the moon. What an amazing thing. We could send a human being to the moon. Right, and we are making great progress in medicine and in technology. 
So maybe modern man really understands Adam one, right? The person of conquest, the person of great dignity. But modern humanity does not understand Adam two, right? The person of community, the person who knows defeat, right? The person who uh, struggles, right? So at that point, he needed to write a book about, oh, Judaism both endorses Adam one and sees that Adam two was crucial. And maybe that's something that modern man is missing out on. So I just think it's interesting. They're both confronting modernity, but Radovid Svi Hoffman is doing it kind of like an argument by argument basis, like the, the T's and the I's. And Ralph Salvechik, I would say, is more interested in confronting the spirit of modernity. Yeah, and of course, that just speaks to also what are the uh, what are the fields in which their training was most intense? Rav Soloveitchik is a philosopher. Rav David Svi Hoffman is a biblical scholar par excellence. And he also obviously was a rabbi and had training in other fields as well. But you see very much, you know, what people choose to write a book on has to be something that speaks very much to their hearts. So, you know, if they're going to spend all their life's work on these uh, on these, on these creations, then it's going to be something that also they have their specialty in. So. That's, if uh, I could just jump in for a second. I know it's not our topic, yeah. but you said one of my three most important points about education. Okay, Any future educators listening out there, you have to teach what you're passionate about. Teach what you love. And I guess we have a yeah. corollary now. You have to write about what you love. If you teach what you love, yeah. you're, you're going to infect the students. And if you teach what you're kind of indifferent about, believe me, they'll notice. I, I'll just say, and if we're already off tangent, that I had a – I teach a number of – several classes a week, and I had one – one window on Monday mornings that I've struggled with consistently. The ti- the timing is a little bit too short to something very in-depth, but it's too long to something that's sort of superficial. And I also was trying to like be something that I wasn't. And this week I walked in and I was like to my students, I said, I know that I'm a little bit shifting the topic of this class for the third time. But today I'm doing what I want to do, which is that I wanted to do something similar to the podcast, which is talk about Parshat Shavua, but I also was going to bring in Parshanim commentators. And I've literally walked away from that class with such a negative feeling every single time I've taught it this year until this week. And I was like, and I just, it was that, that, that truth of like, you can't stand up in front of people and pretend to want to teach or inspire and speak about something that you don't feel is yours. And that's, you know, in your heart. So anyways, I lived that out this week, mamash. And I walked out for the first time and I just felt like, felt like giving anybody a hug. I was just so happy that I finally just didn't feel bad about myself, you know, walking out of there. So yes, that's, that's wildly true. So let's jump into our first uh, our first figure, right? And what they have to say on the parsha, right? We're going to bring in two different comments that are both uh, that are both deeply uh, resonant in in this week's parsha. Okay, great. So one of the questions that emerges uh, is Moshe gets a name in Tanakh based on a Hebrew etymology, right? They call him Moshe Kimin Hamayim because he was drawn from the water, and the simplest reading of the pasuk would be that Bat Paro gives him that name. She seems to be the one calling him that. And all the Mepharshim want to know, wait, Bat Par is an Egyptian woman, no reason to think she's an expert in Hebrew language. Why would she do a Hebrew etymology? Now, there are various answers. Maybe I'll just toss a couple out there. Just Again, we'll have a little bit of a partial focus. So it says Vatikra, she called. It doesn't say who she is. So there is one of the Mepharshim who wants to claim, oh, maybe it's actually Yocheved who gave the name and not Bat Paro. Uh, this is something that really intrigues me. Uh, Yosef, we should discuss this some other time. Uh, there seems to be a pretty good rule in interpretation. When you have a pronoun, you should go with kind of the last subject mentioned beforehand. And when are you allowed, I've been wondering for a long time, like, are there any criteria when are you allowed to deviate from that? 
Okay, because I, I think we wouldn't make it a 100% rule, but it's certainly that's the default. So the default is Bat Paro. She is the last subject mentioned, not Yocheved. But be that as it may, maybe you could somehow de- deviate here and say that it was Yocheved. If it's Bat Paro, so another option is to say that Bat Paro really gave Moshe Egyptian name, right? And then the Torah is somehow either translating or reinterpreting, but really she was totally in the Egyptian language. Okay. What's interesting about Rav Hoppen, and we'll come back to this, is what he perceives as the opportunity in the non-Jewish world of knowledge. Meaning, if you talk about the phrase Torah Umada, which is the Mada that is helpful? So, one option is what we would call today, I think, academic Jewish studies. That scholars in the university world, there's certain things that they focus on that they're quite good at. One would be, I don't know, the history and culture of the ancient Near East or Semitic languages, right? And I don't think there's any way to deny that that information is sometimes helpful. So just to use like one example, if you're trying to figure out what Migdal bubble is about, if you know that there's a kind of Babylonian tower called a ziggurat, maybe that could help you to figure out what Migdal bubble is about, right? I don't think we should ignore that information. So Rev Hoffman says, wait, I know from, you know, old Egyptian inscriptions, that there are Semitic terms that appear. So maybe it's not a crazy thought that Bad Paro had some exposure to Hebrew, and she really could give Hebrew name. I don't have to make it Yochebed, I don't have to say it's Egyptian. Uh, again, maybe she, she obviously knew it was a Hebrew boy, right? That's what she says. So maybe she was enough in an environment with some smattering of Semitic that she could have gone with Hebrew name. So again, I wouldn't say this is like the most earth-shattering chiddush. It changes the entire Tanakh, but it's helpful. We're trying to figure out shot in the particular pasuk, and Rabbi David says, "You know what? If I know ancient Egyptian inscriptions, that is helpful information for deciphering Tanakh." Right. It's interesting because for me, in the in the way that I've been trained and studied, like this, this is the ABCs of how I I read Tanakh, and it, and so it's important for me to remember <laughs> that people teach Tanakh differently, uh, and and of course, I, I you know a combination of literary approaches, and but to me, to ignore the realia of what is being described is is a little bit of a sin against the Torah, meaning I don't have to go as far, let's say, as Kasuto, who says the shot of the Torah is how the initial generations understood the Torah, which sometimes I do go that far, but you don't have to go that far. You can just say this is another level. But sometimes you can't ignore the cultural realities. when, when you, Your questions have to be informed by the cultural rea- realities of the time or else the questions can sound very silly, right? It's a little bit like I compare it to when people say, you know, how could it be that Rashi isn't explaining the Pshat? I'm like, no, no, no. Most of the time Rashi's bringing Midrash, right? When he brings a Pshat, that, is an, that was something that was revelatory uh, in, compar- in comparison to the rest of, of those who were commenting at that time. But the majority of what he brings is a midrash. So don't don't ask why he brought a midrash here. That's that's not the appropriate question. And so if we don't know the cultural realities, then then our questions can often come off as being a, a little bit a little bit silly. I'll just add another idea. I think that is sort of a more like a psychological reading of this of this naming, is that. And again, this might be an over an overstep in terms of what kind of sensitivities they had in, in ancient Egypt. But when somebody adopts a child from another culture, like think about today if somebody 
adopts uh, an Ethiopian child. Um, and they might want to, they might want to, of course, if they were given a name already, then they're going to keep that given name. But maybe when they choose a name for them, they want to choose a name that gives a nod to the culture of that child, meaning to recognize this is where they come from. And, and I don't want them, you know, already their identity is in such, in such a, a shift and, and transition. And so to give a name that also recognizes where they're from, is also something that I think is, is quite sensitive. So it could be that that also might be what's going on here. I will just say that in the broader context of of Tanakh, we have so many names that are clearly a Hebraization of what was the actual name. We have, you know, Tzafnat Paneach is clearly a, a Hebraicized version of the Egyptian name that that uh, that Yosef was given by Pero. So we have many, many, many examples of that. But but I think that this question is is a very important one, and it's again, as you said, one of these places where you can't ignore the aspect of what actually did Egypt, what was Egyptian sounding like at that time. I think that otherwise it just sort of First of all, it's fascinating to me that for you, these the ABCs. It's so interesting how people come from different vantage points. But I think you said something very good, meaning you have people who this is a lot of their focus, and you contrasted it with the literary approach. I think it's interesting. Within the literary approach, you almost have a split. You have some who say, I'm only interested in the text in front of me. Don't tell me anything about the history and culture of the ancient Near East. And maybe even like one of my favorites, maybe even that's Robert Alter. I'm not sure how often Alter brings in any historical or cultural information. And you have other people who somehow are able to combine the two. Okay, maybe Yoni Grossman does a little bit more combination, even though he's mostly literary. So that is an interesting point, right? Uh, where the different approaches, when do you find a way to find a place for all these sources of knowledge? And when are you a little bit more narrow and just uh, in your little world? Yeah, I, I just will say personally that I learned from a lot of these much more literary minded. Uh, there were others in that I could have studied from when I was younger, but I think I, I almost wasn't as interested. But as I like have aged into this world, I've much more come to that middle ground of, okay, like when when is literary convention important? And when is that not the relevant point here in understanding what the Psukim are actually try, coming to try and tell us? At some, so there are moments where the literary approach actually can feel naive uh, a little bit when it comes to the text. So I think that every approach has its limitations. I also think that only looking at a question through the lens of ancient Near East can also sometimes feel very, very dry. And if someone is looking for religious meaning in their text, that is a reading that's interesting. But if it doesn't also elevate or or move the person who is studying, it may not be the one you want to bring in a particular teaching capacity. So yeah, these okay, are all I, really I interesting. Can I jump on that also actually? Because that yeah, I think, sure. sets up another contrast. We just contrasted more academic with more literary. Also, I, I hinted at this before, just what mod are we trying to encounter? Meaning, I think if we go back to German Orthodoxy, you have a Dovzi Hoffman, and people usually cite Rav Hirsch. Now, Rav Hirsch was utterly uninterested in any of this. He did not care what ancient Egyptian inscriptions said. But he thought that if you read Friedrich Schiller's poetry or Goethe, you were inspired. So that is a totally different, and again, they're not, you know, contradictory necessarily, but different personalities are drawn to different things. So you might have someone who says, Mada is not about, you know, history or ancient history or about ancient Semitic languages. Mada is about like the inspiring literature in the universe. And I do think what Yosef has said is right. It's interesting, like who would be drawn to, to either? You might say they're almost like different values at work. I'm going to simplify a little bit, but a Dovsi Hoffman might be, I don't know, a truth seeker. We want to get to the absolute truth. If we know what's happening historically in Egypt, that is a better way to get there. And the critique of that, or the flip side, would be exactly what Yosef has said. So say, that's pretty dry. 
pretty dry study reading like I, I don't know maybe you, you, you feel differently Joseph. I'm not so religiously inspired when I read Egyptian hieroglyphics doesn't really do it for me <laughs> doesn't get the soul racing but uh, <laughs> you read a great poem like forget Schiller you read I don't know Frost or Yeats or anybody or Wordsworth and you're inspired so maybe the other side is yeah but aren't we looking for you know touching the soul and at that point, maybe the other kind of mod is where it's at. So, again, a lot of this is understanding the balance, as we said before, the pros and cons of various things we focus on. Yeah. I'll just say before we move on to the next comment that I very much notice what resonates based on, you know, what students remain in your class. Um, I mean, as a te anyone who's a teacher knows that feeling when you know who you're touching and who this is passing over them. And so you very much see that. And then there's, you know, everyone has a different, a different way that their soul turns. Also just add that there are also many modern thinkers who didn't want to walk into the minefield of biblical criticism. And so how they studied Tanakh was informed by a desire to sort of avoid that. And the introduction of literary criticism, where you could look at the text as is, even if people then went into that and then did it sort of different versions of it, really opened up the, the ability to study Tanakh rigorous, rigorously and not immediately have to kowtow to the idea of, do, of the documentary hypothesis. So that's maybe for another time, you know, sort of the, the weeds of, of, uh, of biblical criticism. But I think that that's a really a really great window into it through the commentary of, of Radatz Hoffman. So to sort of like round out this introduction, we want to go a little bit back towards Rav Soloveitchik, right? So the pasuk that we're looking at is uh, is in the transitional verses that come at the end of the second chapter of Sefer Shemot after Moshe has grown up and sort of starts to become who he is. The Pharaoh of Egypt dies, and it says, Right? They suffer, and then they cry out uh, to God, and afterwards the pasuk is going to tell us that God hears their cries. So I think a sensitive commentator on Chumash will be curious about different verbs that mean the same thing. And we certainly have the word Hitpalel, right? Hitpalel is used with Avram and Avimelech. And here we don't have Hitpalel, but Vayizaku. So is there somehow a difference between one form of prayer, one form of calling out to God, and another? So this is something that interests Rav Soloveitchik. And in an essay that appeared in tradition in 1978 called Redemption Prayer Talmud Torah, he develops a very interesting uh, division. He says that the slave at first really just has silence, right? The slave has lost his voice or her voice. And then at some point you gain a voice, but the voice is not articulate yet. The voice is a primal cry. And then there's a third stage where the primal cry develops into a well-thought-out articulation. And for Rav Salvechik, uh, za'aka is stage two. And tefillah would be stage three. So I, I, just to give you some sense, uh, I'm, I'm jumping in a little bit. I just think it'll help everybody understand. Rav Slavichik would contrast, let's say, Slichot and Shmona Esrei. Shmona Esrei is a great example of stage three. Think about how structured. It's not a primal scream. It is incredibly structured, right? Praise, request, thanksgiving. The requests are structured in a particular way. This is a well-organized prayer. What about Slichot, right? We're calling out like the same thing again and again, right? The 13 attributes of mercy, Right? This does not seem like an incredibly structured thing. It seems like we're just the primal cry. God, have mercy on us. So, But I, I like that example also because it shows that 
the primal scream is not to be looked down upon as something without value. Maybe that's part of life also. That also has its place. So that, I think, is interesting religiously per se, the Zaka model and the Tefillah model. But I think it's also interesting in terms of learning Shemot, right? Maybe some of Shemot is the trajectory of Am Yisrael in Egypt. What are they up to, right? Where are they consciousness-wise? Where are they religious-wise? How does the slave mentality play out? I think that's something a Parshan has to ask. So in Rav Salvechik's model, we learned something. Oh, here is the death of the old Egyptian king did create something. It somehow generated a move from silence to stage two. But they were not yet up to a more advanced kind of prayer of stage three. We could kind of place Am Yisrael to see where they really were at that moment in time. I think that there's um, a powerful parallel to the moment that we're in because, you know, after October 7th, right, uh, the massacre of Simchat Torah, nobody had any words, <laughs> meaning that you almost felt like the silence in Israel of just like utter shock. Um, that was instigated by, by massacre. Here, it's Perhaps it's been instigated by slavery, by people who their their voice has been stamped out of that out of them, and therefore it'll take time for them to recover that voice of theirs. But I've also mentioned this idea in the context of grief in different episodes, right? Where again, some people process life through words, but in the wake of of October seventh, even the wordiest people I know didn't have anything to say. And so I think that that reflects itself also in how it's a reflection of formulation of thought, right? Whether you're speaking to somebody else or speaking to God or just your the system is is shut down. And so I think that, that that's very much what comes up for me when when that when I was reading that idea of reiterate that's a great point. I think I should teach this this way in the future, meaning I phrase Zaka as a product of kind of the limitations of a slave. But you're totally right. There could be four other factors that put you in stage one or stage two. or There are various reasons why someone would be less articulate. Yeah, yeah, many reasons. And I think that I very much like that frame of looking at Amisrael. And it's going to take them a long time for them to sort of find, I wouldn't even say a voice, but to find like a mature voice. That That's going to be our main struggle. They, they'll, they'll know how to use words, but it's going to take a while till they learn to use those words effectively. Uh, and so I think that that is a really, really important point. And yeah, it comes from this place of, you know, their humanity was was deprived of them for for a long time. And so it just it's, that's a process that's going to take uh, going to take probably even more than one generation. The Rav was a Jewish philosopher. A lot of his work is, let's say, in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And at the time in Europe, a group, uh, movement called existentialism was popular. People would talk about, uh, you know, Camus being existentialist and Sartre being existentialist. And some of what it was, was a move away from very abstract metaphysical philosophy to a much more concrete reality-based philosophy. Just to give you one beautiful phrase, Hegel is very abstract. So Kierkegaard said about Hegel, Hegel's like somebody who builds a palace and lives in the doghouse next door. Meaning it's very nice structure, but it's nothing to do with life. And the existentialists wanted to move philosophy to really a philosophy of life. And I think Rav Soloveitchik's thought does really impact on that. Meaning he wrote a lot of profound things about prayer, but he was not so interested in the classic like abstract questions. Oh, how does prayer change God's mind? Right. Uh, that's a classic metaphysical question. Rav Salvechik was much more interested in the experience of the praying individual. And I think this is a good example. And I think if you study Rav Salvechik on prayer in general, you'll come to that conclusion. 
So I think this fits a little bit like I said before also that um, his confrontation with modernity was much more about the spirit of the age. And as Yosef has said, he's a philosopher, not a Bible scholar. And here we talked before about how lowly man of faith is the modern man confronting defeat, not just victory. And I think here we have, okay, modern man, what is the experience of prayer for a praying individual? Let's leave all the metaphysical abstractions on the side. What does it mean to actually pray? So I just want to add one point before we end our conversation that I think is going to be incredibly relevant to all the future conversations, which is that in the broader world, when somebody has a discipline that they excel at, that's their discipline, meaning they grew up, they were educated, they went to school, they were trained. What I think is so unique, I, I really, I wonder if anybody in like the broader academic world ever finds this of interest. What I think is so interesting about Jewish thinkers is that at their base, they all share a core education. Meaning when we say Russell Vichick is a philosopher, he's a massive lamdan. Do you know what I'm saying? Meaning his core knowledge is very much in the weeds of things. Meaning he's learning Gemara from the age of being almost a toddler. And so his training is in something that is highly practical and 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 detailed and and and, and very, very complicated. And that's going to be true, whether we're speaking about Radat Hoffman or we're speaking about Russell Vichick or we're speaking about I don't know, one of the Chabad Rabbanim, meaning their base training is in that rigor. And so to me, the fact that they then also go off and have sort of like this other branch that they end up being known for in, in many ways even more than their than their traditional scholarship is is such a fascinating test case because it really shows you how you know people will follow their persuasions but their base knowledge is something that's similar and it's very difficult and it's very different than what you would think a philosopher would enjoy learning. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not necessarily what I would imagine. I could not agree more. I'll say two things about your point. One, I'm a believer in the canon, like both in secular yes. and Jewish literature. But just yes. if you're a knowledgeable person, you have to know certain things. So just like you can't say I'm knowledgeable in the Western world, but I've never opened Shakespeare. So I think you can't say I'm you know, a Jewish scholar, but I can't read a line of Gemara. Like, no, that's part of the canon. Wherever you go, you have to start there. I do believe that. I would even go a step further. It could be you're hinting at this too. It'll spill over into your individualized choice afterward. I think the Rav's philosophy was deeply affected by his great knowledge of Gemara. I mean, that it's too much to get into this second. But yeah. I totally agree your point. A, every culture has certain things that a knowledgeable person should know. And B, those things end up having a spillover and I think positive effect on how they individualize their studies afterward. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was such a great springboard for what's going to come after. So thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. It was quite interesting. Before we close today's episode, I just want to remind you that for all updates regarding Matan's activities and programming, you can always check out our website. And I also want to tell you that Matan is running a women's solidarity mission to Israel, uh, January 21st to the 25th. Matan invites you to join us for an inspiring four-day trip to Israel, an opportunity to demonstrate solidarity in the midst of war and volunteer where it's needed most and support our brave female soldiers, women, and families that are in crisis. So please check out our website for more details and how you can join in that moving mission. Thanks for listening to this week's episode from Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. Please do us and all women's Torah learning a favor and share this episode with all of your friends and family. 